So much of what's being proposed here to me feels like it is coming from a place of deep paranoia and deep cynicism that a mistake is always a fraud, that a limitation is always needed because human nature is inherently bad, that the vast majority of Americans, if given the opportunity to cheat the system, would do so. I just don't start in those places. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. If you are new here, thanks to the Apple Spotlight program, we are so pleased to have you. You know, the community surrounding our show is just, it's just the driving engine behind everything we do here. Today's show comes out the day after the one-year anniversary of the World Health Organization declaring COVID-19 as a global pandemic. So we're all thinking through that anniversary Now, on Tuesday, we're going to be talking about the impact of the pandemic with Dr. Carla Vermeulen, who is an expert on mental health and disasters, which is such a fascinating and important angle to examine this anniversary through. And then if you're new to the show and you haven't heard our community COVID-19 episodes from last summer in those first few months of the pandemic, we featured stories from our listeners who were facing the pandemic in their own voices and deeply personal ways. And we're really proud of that work. So check that out as well. Before we talk about the anniversary in more depth, we are actually going to spend the majority of the show on the state legislative efforts to affect voting rights across the country, both efforts to suppress the vote and efforts to expand the vote. We're going to be talking about federal legislation and cases before the Supreme Court with regards to voting rights. And then we're going to wrap up the show, as we always do, with outside politics. And I'm going to give you all an update on my sore, sad little hip. So I know y'all are just dying for that update. That's coming later in the show. But first, we really did want to talk about this anniversary. Anniversary is such a hard word to Mm -hmm. mark something like this. It's the best word that we have. It's a year since things got very real for us in the United States. Certainly, it is more than a year since COVID-19 really became a global health issue. But this is when we started to understand it with the NBA shutdown, with the declaration of national emergencies, with lots of workplaces and schools saying we're going to have to go remote. The West Coast obviously dealt with things more rapidly than the rest of us. And we had Americans on cruise ships. But March 11th is about as close as we have to kind of a national date to take stock of where we are after a year of living in a really new way. So let's look at the numbers around the world and here in the United States. Nearly 118 million people globally contracted COVID-19 and 2.6 million people around the world have died from the disease. In the United States, we've lost almost 528,000 members of our community due to COVID-19. A year ago, the death toll was only 38, which is so difficult to think about. I think back about that time when they were saying, well, oh, my goodness, we could get to 250,000 deaths. And we were all horrified. And here we sit a year later at 528,000 deaths. We had a listener, Mike, send us a medium piece about the anger that so many people feel about the fact that we've reached that number and how Mm. difficult it is to sit with the anger that the United States 
fared so poorly compared to other countries, that we politicized so many aspects of taking some pretty basic public health precautions. And I understand that anger, even as I try really hard to be grace-filled in my assessment of understanding how we were all thrust into a new situation and a situation that pulled at us emotionally in so many directions, that pulled at our energy in so many directions, that required adaptation in ways that many of us have never had to adapt before. It is very hard, and I'm glad that we're going to spend some time on Tuesday with an expert talking through what the other side of this looks like, because we are talking about the numbers in past tense. We know there is still very real threat out mm-hmm. there. We know that people are still contracting this disease, that they are still in hospitals, that they are still dying. The fact that we're on a good trajectory with those numbers doesn't make any person suffering today less valuable than people who suffered previously. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's just a long way to go, even once we get to something like herd immunity recovering emotionally from this is going to be difficult. I think the other important timeline to talk about is the timeline of the vaccines. You know, we all know that I'm a eternal cheerleader for the vaccine, but I just remember having so many conversations with people when this started, and by people I mean my husband, where he was balking at my optimism that we would have a vaccine in 18 months. I was like, no, I trust Dr. Fauci. I think when he says we'll be looking at it about 18 months, we'll be there. And here we are even faster than that timeline. You know, we had never had a vaccine faster than several years. And I loved how Axios put it. They were talking about, you know, when we speak about the suffering and the way our lives have been upended, it seems like an eternity. But the timeline for when we went to declaring a global pandemic to having 60 plus million Americans receiving at least one dose of the vaccine is an instant and sort of the the previous orientation to how long these things should take. And we're going to process that more with an organic chemist who is an expert on manufacturing distribution for vaccines very soon. So lots more coming on the COVID front. But we felt like it was important to spend a minute here today just acknowledging where we are. And our moment of hope uh, dovetails very nicely with your optimism, Sarah. Yes, the Native American community, which is one of the groups most at risk for COVID, communities that have seen just devastation when the virus takes hold there, are actually getting vaccinated at a rate higher than all but five states. So their vaccination campaigns have been incredibly successful. The White Earth Nation of Minnesota began vaccinating non-tribal members and has vaccinated nearly 90 percent of their elders. Many of these tribes are doing so well that they're starting to offer doses to nearby residents. That's happening in Laguna Pueblo, which is Deb Holland's tribe. So they've started offering doses to nearby residents in New Mexico because they've been so successful at vaccinating members of their community, which what a success. What a wonderful success to see happening. And relying again on the reporting from Axios twice in about two minutes here, (laughs) I loved the Three indigenous principles they cited as helping provide the impetus for getting people vaccinated, which has had to happen mostly through word of mouth and tribal outreach. You know, Internet access on native lands in this country is is a really it's just a national embarrassment in terms of the infrastructure situation and the federal government needs to provide more access. And I hope that when she is confirmed as Secretary of the Interior. Deb Holland will be very focused on that. I have every confidence that she will be. But 
Activist Ali Young, a citizen of the Navajo Nation, shared these three principles that have helped this effort. Recognize how Native Americans' actions will impact the next seven generations. Act in honor of ancestors who fought to ensure their survival and elders who carry on their traditions and cultures. Hold on to ancestral knowledge in the ongoing fight to protect Mother Earth. I love that. I love that that's the guiding values and that they're, we're seeing those play out in such real ways to a community that has experienced such suffering over the last year. Next up, we're going to go ahead and roll into our main segment because we have a lot to tackle when it comes to voting rights in the United States. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. As we begin this conversation making sure and starting with the historic turnout in 2020 seems really important to me. We had 158.4 million ballots cast in the United States, nearly two-thirds of estimated eligible voters. That's seven points higher 
than in 2016, and you saw turnout rates increase in almost every state compared with 2016. But the states you saw with the most turnout, the highest increases, conducted their elections either entirely or mostly by mail. So I think that's super interesting. Six of those states had just recently adopted all-mail voting permanently in the case of Hawaii, who saw their turnout rise by 42.3%. That is mind-boggling to me. What a success. Now, while we're just handing out love, it is important to note that Minnesota still has the highest turnout of any state last year, with 79.4% of estimated eligible voters casting ballots. Minnesota, I just want you to keep up the good work. That is admirable. Good job. I also think it's important in thinking about 2020 to remember what a mixed bag it was for both parties. Mm -hmm. Because while you had Democrats winning the White House, Republicans did much better in both the House of Representatives and the Senate and in local elections than— And also got a ton of votes for the losing candidate. They still got a ton of votes. They definitely overperformed compared Mm -hmm. to where many commentators expected the party to be. And so you had this increase in turnout exciting people on both sides of the aisle. You had these different opportunities to vote reaching people on both sides of the aisle. And certainly we had a narrative that more blue votes would come through the mail. And I think that is self-selecting entirely because of the way President Trump chose to talk about that process. We also know, though, that we had people who never voted before come out and vote for President Trump with Mm -hmm. expanded early voting. And so I don't think you can look at the experiment we just had in terms of how people vote and what opportunities exist and call it something that necessarily inures to the benefit of one party or the other or that it operates to the detriment of one party or the Mm -hmm. other. Nevertheless, that is the narrative coming out of 2020 because we have become so focused on the office of the presidency. The narrative coming out of 2020 for a frighteningly large percentage of the Republican Party is that something went terribly wrong Mm -hmm. in this election, even though many, many Republican candidates were successful. Something must have gone terribly wrong. And so now you see an interest in rolling back those opportunities to vote across the country. To me, that is the key point, is even if they were basing much of this legislation on data from the 2020 election, that would be foolhardy because it's such a a historic election, because we had a global pandemic, because there were, you know, just a prolific amount of voting changes, both permanent and temporary. And you had a presidential candidate really campaigning actively against the election itself. So, But let's just pretend, like, even in the face of all that, based on the data from that campaign, from that election, writing legislation, you know, which some of this is, really interested in absentee voting, lots of states. It's like only six of the 44 states that have introduced election bills have not proposed policies to alter absentee voting. So there's this huge interest on voting, on absentee voting, which is based a little bit in reality of 2020 even though that reality is very special and very unique. But on top of that, you have all this legislation that just isn't based in any reality. 
That is based on all the, the big lie that the election was stolen only at the presidential level, not at any lower level, as you just pointed out, that it was stolen and that there's just this massive fraud that we need to prevent. And so to me, both of those things, like even if you're if you're really trying to place this in some foundation of reality based on 2020, 2020 is so special, you might end up hurting your own party. And two, you're doing this based on the big lie and this fundamental campaign of misinformation against the election. And so you're really not based on any reality that could, again, end up with legislation that hurts your party. To me, it's just there seems to be no long game here. There seems to be no desire to actually, you know, pay attention to what will have impact. And like, I'll even give you like be as cynical as possible, like even impact on your own party. Right. Like if we're talking about Republican legislators introducing all of these bills. But we're getting pretty far into the philosophy of this. Let's talk about some of the bills themselves. So the Brennan Center for Justice has been tracking all this legislation. And as of February 19th of this year, state lawmakers have either carried over from previous legislative sessions, pre-filed or introduced over 253 bills with provisions that either restrict voting access in 43 states and 704 bills with provisions that expand voting access in a different set of 43 states. So this is especially with the the provisions restricting votes, this is seven times the number introduced in state legislators by this time last year. So there's an enormous momentum, especially in states like Arizona and Georgia, where there were red states that went blue, but even in Pennsylvania and sort of the the headliners, right, the swing states where we saw an enormous amount of controversy, where you saw members of the House of Representatives vote against those election results in Electoral College. So like the the big names where you would expect to see a lot of this are there, but it's really across the country. So as it relates to mail-in voting, we have states moving to either limit the opportunities to vote by mail or eliminate no-excuse mail-in voting, going back to a short number of reasons that you can vote absentee. Some states permit voters to join a permanent absentee voting list. This is called single sign-on. And this option can be offered to all voters or to a limited number of voters based on certain criteria. We have now lots of bills that have been filed to make it harder to get on that permanent absentee voting list or to make it not really permanent, where you have to sign up year after year. Mm -hmm. Every single election, you have to go back and say, here's why I'd like to vote absentee. May I do that? And that's really important. I mean, that's that's an access issue. We have lots of people who are homebound or people in the military or people that travel for jobs. People have real reasons to be on that list permanently, and we want them to be able to vote. And so to make it where you're constantly having to check, although, listen, constantly having to check your voting status is a thing that happens to people not trying to get on the permanent list. But I think that that is really what we saw in 2020 is just the breadth of human experience and how it seems like voting should be such an easy thing to do, but that we're all so limited by our own personal experiences. And when you see and read about like reasons people are on the permanent absentee voting list, what an experience or an experiment and empathy, right, to understand like, wow, there's just so many life situations that I not only don't understand myself, but might not even know anybody with that experience. We'll talk more about that in particular in a few minutes, but we also have 
legislation proposed with respect to absentee voting about postmark dates Mm -hmm. because we had so many court cases about that during COVID-19. And listen, some of the bills being filed here are good and helpful, and it is important to set some statewide standards and for those standards to be set by legislatures instead of officials in the midst of a crisis. So I don't want to paint a picture that everything going on is terrible. I do want to say, again, Arizona and Georgia, places where the world really changed in mm-hmm. surprising ways for Republicans, you see some of the most extreme proposals. And one of those comes from Arizona, where they are requiring now mail ballots to be, the proposal is to require mail ballots to be postmarked by the Thursday before Election Day. Even if the ballot arrives at election offices on Election Day before the polls close, they want the ballot to be postmarked by the Thursday before. And That, to me, is the kind of thing that should never make it out of someone's office, just being Mm -hmm. kicked around as an idea. What are we doing if we're saying we don't want to count absentee ballots unless they were cast well in advance of Election Day? You also see a lot of restrictions to assisted voting. Conservatives call this ballot harvesting. (laughs) Democrats call this ballot collection. I think a lot of the disagreements found right there in the language. And so you see legislators in about eight states proposing bills that impose or increased really strict limits on who can assist in returning a voter's ballot. A South Carolina bill would impose a photo ID requirement for anyone returning another absentee ballot. And, you know, this is interesting, Beth. I saw a write-up of the proposal you talk about all the time that was written by uh, former President Jimmy Carter and former President Gerald Ford after the 2000 election. And they actually had some really interesting limits on who could assist someone in casting the ballot. But they also had, you know, lots of recommendations that touch on other areas of this. There's enough in that proposal, which I know you've talked about a lot, that either side can cite. And I'm sure we'll talk about this in a little bit, but it seems like the most important part is taking the whole thing as a as a comprehensive recommendation and you know, I think that's the problem with so much of these these state bills. Like, even if I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt that you think fraud is a problem, this sort of like intense scrutiny on certain sections of voting regulations without the acknowledgement that like this is this is a system that works comprehensively. And so without sort of comprehensive reform or at least an understanding of the way all these pieces fit together, you're going to have pieces of the bill that impact some communities more harshly than others. Although I think, you know, if you're being, if you're not giving it a benefit of the doubt, I would say that's the design. According to that report, assisted voting is the greatest opportunity for fraud that we Mm -hmm. have across the board in our elections. And so I think it's reasonable to be investigating, okay, what are some safeguards around this process? The trouble is state by state, the reason people need to assistance voting can vary. Mm -hmm. And the types of communities where that's happening legitimately are usually not the types of communities on lawmakers' minds when they make these provisions. Or maybe they are, and there's actual discriminatory animus against those communities, which I think there's a reasonable argument to be made in some cases for, too. So this is one where I think a state-by-state approach theoretically should work. I also think that in terms of oversight and ensuring that discrimination doesn't inch into that process, we need some minimum standards from Congress. So we have several states that are paying attention to voter ID laws. 
In 10 states that do not require voters to present a photo ID, legislators have introduced bills to impose an ID requirement. You have six bills in Arizona, Missouri, and New Hampshire that would institute stricter voter ID requirements for early in-person voting. And Missouri would make their ID requirements stricter for Election Day voting. So, again, those voter ID laws and the restrictions on, like, what kind of ID you can have, that just puts up more and more barriers for people to vote. We also have barriers in the form of voter registration laws. So 10 bills have been introduced to cut back on opportunities to register to vote on Election Day. Legislators in five states have introduced bills to eliminate Election Day registration entirely. So there would be a date in advance of the election. Now, some of us have had that in place our entire yep. life. We've never seen same-day Election Day registration. And so that might sound like no big deal to us. And again, it's no big deal depending on what you are accustomed to and what opportunities you have and your level of education and your level of interaction with the government. Alaska and Georgia legislators have introduced bills to eliminate automatic voter registration. Again, some states we've never experienced automatic voter registration. That Carter Commission recommended automatic voter registration across the United States. So this is going in a different direction. And then we have bills targeted at voter purges. Twelve states have introduced 21 different bills that would expand purges of voter rolls or adopt other practices that would risk improper purges. Now, this is where we get into, like, every anecdote sounds terrible. Anytime Mm -hmm. you hear about someone who is dead voting or someone who moved out of state voting, every anecdote sounds terrible. Often, those anecdotes are being told in ways that are incomplete. Mm -hmm. And there are some errors, and I think it is important to try to reduce errors. And I also think it should be really hard for a state to take someone off their voter rolls. So here's an important piece of this conversation. Whenever there is a flurry of state legislation, it's really difficult to pay attention to what matters. And what I mean by that is all there are a lot of bills out there right now, and they're not all going to become law. And so where do we focus our energies and our attention to where they really are making progress through the legislative system? You know, Iowa has just this week passed legislation and the governor signed it into laws that really, really restricts voter access. They cut early voting by nine days. They are closing the polls an hour earlier. They are tightening rules on absentee voting. They're stripping away the authority of county auditors. You know, I tried to to read these statements and watch these press conferences with an open mind, but I do not see how you justify anything that's just continuing to limit voter access. So that's law in Iowa. Now, we're going to talk about this in a minute because the next thing that will happen is that this law is all going to be challenged in court. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court and voter rights, too. But I think the other place where this is really moving forward quickly is in Georgia. This was what I thought was so interesting about the legislative strategy in Georgia. So the Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, is prolific in his praise And in every press release he released, and he got a lot of attention during the 2020 election, we all know his name, he said, Georgia is recognized as a national leader in elections because it was the first state in the country to implement the trifecta of automatic voter registration, at least 16 days of early voting, and no excuse absentee voting. And these bills before the Georgia legislature would reduce or eliminate 
all three of these that the Republican Secretary of State has been holding up as an accomplishment of their system and the gold standard of election reform. And look, I don't think that everything Brad Raffensperger has done has been with the effort of voter expansion. I think that he has done a huge amount. And, you know, despite this sort of sudden hero status because of his interactions with President Trump, his record is far from clear. But the fact that he holds these three things up is like the gold standard and the Republican Party and the and the Georgia legislator is trying to roll back all three. I also think Georgia's proposals are, are in that category of how did this get out of someone's office? Mm-hmm. There is a proposal to ban activities like passing out water oh and blankets gosh. when people are standing in long lines. Now, look, oh I just Lord. I want to just propose in the universe a little guidepost. If you are talking about making it a misdemeanor to hand someone a bottle of water in any context, I think something's wrong. You <laughs> should just take a couple steps back and assess What are we doing here? And this is the thing. All of these proposals to restrict early voting, to limit absentee voting, are going to cycle around to the problem that we've seen in previous elections of people standing in line for hours to Mm -hmm. vote in parts of the country. Again, we have to think about more than just our community experience. Even when we are only allowed to vote on Election Day in Kentucky, I have never had to stand in line for more than 20 minutes to vote. So it is easy for me to sit here in my comfortable Kentucky suburb and say, well, what's the big deal? Mm -hmm. But that's because I've never had to stand in line for five, six, ten hours to cast my ballot. And that is a reality in lots of places. And it's a reality in Georgia so much so that they are mad at people for trying to keep people in those lines Mm -hmm. and calling it improper election activity, improper campaign activity as people are standing and waiting to vote. I just think that is really silly. And so much of what's being proposed here to me feels like it is coming from a place of deep paranoia and deep Mm -hmm. cynicism that a mistake is always a fraud, that a limitation is always needed because human nature is inherently bad, that the vast majority of Americans, if given the opportunity to cheat the system, would do so. I just don't start in those places. Yeah. Well, and look, it's not a united front. The lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan, has opposed these efforts to the point where he did not attend the legislative session. He gave up his gavel and walked to his second floor suite because he was so opposed to these to the passage of this legislation. Jimmy Carter has come out in opposition And I think that you, you know, see a lot of activism, a lot of acknowledgement that, you know, not only are these motivated by cynicism, but that the impact of these laws will disproportionately affect African-American communities, that these laws are targeting communities who have historically had their right to vote suppressed or basically eliminated during Jim Crow, and that We are in desperate need for federal legislation that will begin to address what you were just talking about, that that we need a comprehensive approach. And I think what you were just talking, what you were just saying about, like, my own experience, I think that's true of so many aspects of this. 
you know, it was so funny when we would talk about mail-in voting and our people in Oregon were so legitimately confused by this conversation. Like people were concerned about mail-in voting and they are just, they don't understand because they've been mail-in voting forever. They're like, well, I don't understand y'all's concerns. Or like if you are a upper income educated person and you have a lot of socioeconomic access and power, voter ID laws don't make sense to you. What's the big deal? Just show them your license. But that is a big deal. We are a big, complicated country. And, you know, down to the the different regions and the way they approach voting. You know, the West has always had more expansive voting laws and better opportunities to vote. And it's not just the South that has terrible voting restrictions. I mean, New England, New York and New Jersey, it's notoriously difficult to vote there. And when you talk about the range of experience to say like the usual filter of our personal experience is applicable here can just lead to really short-sighted opinions, short-sighted politics, short-sighted legislation, short-sighted political strategies, in my opinion. And I think that's really what we're looking at here. And the trouble is when you bring a short-sighted approach to voting, then you get a short-sighted approach, a marginalizing approach mm-hmm. that centers high-earning white people in our governance. And mm-hmm. so that's problematic. I wanted to just point out a couple things that I think are not horrible pieces of legislation moving forward. And this is not a comprehensive list. There is some good work being done out there. I love this. This is the optimistic portion of our voting show, the not horrible things. Not horrible. Like I said, there are some good things out there, but there are some there are some tough proposals in Florida. But there is a provision on the table that would allow election officials to begin mail ballot tabulation earlier in the election cycle. And state election supervisors are excited about that. We as a country should be excited about that because waiting on Florida is always part of our national Mm -hmm. calculus because of the way it's situated in the Electoral College. And I think that across the country... If we want to alleviate some of the burden on the people who run our elections, allowing them to start counting earlier is a good piece of that. I read about Alabama's proposal to eliminate straight ticket voting in a piece that was criticizing all of these measures. And the critique is that this could create longer lines, that the longer you stand people, you require people to stand in line and check off every box, the longer the process will take. As we've talked about here before, I am in favor of eliminating Mm -hmm. straight ticket voting options. I think that we get better thought and there's less confusion and clear expressions of our preferences when we don't vote straight ticket. Yep. So I like that proposal. And then this is a moment when we can highlight in Kentucky. You know, we have election reform that's happened as a result of lots of bipartisan compromise. And it doesn't go as far as most of us would like. Mm -hmm. It only allows for three days of early voting. But there is an expansion of the right to vote in Kentucky proceeding through the legislature with widespread bipartisan support. And what a gift that is here yeah. in 2021. And I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to see it. And I know that, again, the progressive side of the Democratic Party in Kentucky is not getting everything they want, not getting everything I want. We're still not going to have no excuse absentee balloting, which I really wish that we had. But I'm happy with what we are getting. And I, listen, we have a Democratic governor. I think that's part of the the puzzle piece here. I think when you have divided government in a way that people have to make some concessions and and more like not just run roughshod, right, and get everything they want to think about it, which seems like what's happening in in Arizona or Georgia. Although I will say the Governor Kemp has not 
stated what he's going to do, whether he's going to sign this legislation or not. But yeah, when I read the story and Kentucky was being praised for these bipartisan election reform efforts, I was just so thrilled, so proud. So the Washington Post has a good summary of where we are. You have 33 states proposing restrictions to mail-in and early voting. In those 33 states, 85 million people used one of those methods to vote in the last election. The outlook for that legislation, as Sarah pointed out, some of this will go through and not all of it. You have to think about where does one party control both legislative chambers? We have 38 states like that where you have control of both legislative chambers and the governorship. 23 of those are Republican states. 15 are Democratic states. And the states with the most restrictive proposals, Arizona, Georgia, South Carolina, Missouri, and Florida, there is a GOP trifecta. Mm. So as this legislation gets passed, what's going to happen next? Well, people are going to sue. Lots and lots of people are going to sue. And much of this will end up before the Supreme Court. And so we wanted to take a minute to talk about where the legislation, specifically the Voting Rights Act, currently stands and what that tells us about the Supreme Court as these cases come before them. So the Voting Rights Act has three parts. It had a component called preclearance so that any new voting-related laws within certain jurisdictions had to go to the federal government and say, is this okay? Can we do this? Now, this was eliminated by the Supreme Court, infamously, pretty famously, by John Roberts writing the majority majority opinion in Shelby County. So, you know, they, they gutted preclearance, and they said that requiring states to get federal permission before changing changing their own voting laws, because the Constitution does give the running of elections to state officials, was an extraordinary measure adopted to stress an extraordinary problem, which was Jim Crow, and that a half a century after the Voting Rights Act first became law, that we didn't need preclearance anymore. And so then you see a rush of laws, particularly in southern states, experimenting with voter suppression. Let's just let's just say this is this is what happened. And so all these laws came through. And so then you have two other ways under the Voting Rights Act to address these laws. The first was Section 2, which is the intent. So did the legislators have racist intent when they passed these laws? And the Supreme Court had already interpreted Section 2 so strictly that proving legislators had racist intent was dang near impossible. And so when they did this, Congress came back and said, "Okay, well, let's add a section where you have to prove that there even if you can't prove that there are racist intent with these laws, you can prove that there are racist results. And so that's basically the only arm of the Voting Rights Act that still stands. Can you prove that there were racist results to these voting laws? And so you probably heard a lot of media coverage about Bernavik versus Democratic National Committee in Arizona, Republican Party versus Democratic National Committee that came to the court earlier this month. These are two Arizona laws at issue, which is bar that bars counting of provisional ballots cast in the wrong precinct and bars collection of absentee ballots by anyone other than a family member or caregiver. And this was a big deal for rural areas of Arizona and the Navajo Nation, which is very remote, lots of poverty. So people have to travel, you know, an hour or more to get to a mailbox to mail their ballot. And so depending on people to collect those ballots was really helpful. Okay, so these challenges to these laws uh, went to the Ninth Circuit, which found no evidence of ballot collection and delivery fraud in Arizona and struck this down as violating Section 2. So the Arizona GOP appealed this to the Supreme Court, and that's where we got with the oral argument, which everyone is trying to read like tea leaves to decide how people are going to shake out. I mean, we know where Justice Roberts stands. Justice Roberts has way back in the 80s when they first added 
the results section to the Voting Rights Act, wrote memos um, to Reagan saying, don't do this, don't do this. We've gotten rid of intent. We cannot add a results test. Um, And he lost. Reagan, to his credit, um, signed the bill that added the um, results test. But he, you know, he's sort of notorious as being opposed to this legislation. So I think we're, we know where he stands. But I'm interested to hear what you think, Beth. I was listening to some analysis that said, basically, this might be a stay of execution. There's probably going to become, like we said, more legislation challenging the test under the Voting Rights Act. But that the Arizona GOP got a little greedy and they went too far. And you could see this in a lot of the questioning, even from the more conservative justices, that they were basically arguing any time, place, or manner regulation was okay as, as far as voting. And apparently, Justice Kagan was like, oh, so we could require everyone to vote in a country club? And the the lawyer for the Arizona GOP was like, oh, no, 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 that's not what we meant. And that it, it quickly became apparent that they sort of overestimated how far the court was willing to go um, with regards to this. But this particular test of the Voting Rights Act, where you can prove uh, discriminatory results, is still in a lot of trouble. I've read analysis that the Republican position went too far here and analysis that the Democratic position is too aggressive here and that overall, this is a really unfortunate test case regarding the standard Mm -hmm. around Section 2 because most voting rights cases are brought by voters who have experienced some form of disenfranchisement. And this is a true battle between the parties. And that's a terrible posture for the Supreme Court to consider something Mm -hmm. as important as how they're going to decide Section 2 cases. You probably heard in media coverage of the oral argument that Justice Barrett asked, why is the Arizona Republican Party here? And the lawyer for the Arizona Republican Party said, well, because the Ninth Circuit ruling puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. Politics is a zero-sum game, and every extra vote they get through unlawful interpretations of Section 2 hurts us. It's the difference between winning an election 50 to 49 and losing. Well, that's discouraging as well, to have parties in front of the United States Supreme Court putting to them such a plainly political question. Mm -hmm. I was interested in hearing Justice Kagan's reflection during oral argument that the longer it went on, the less clear she was as to what standards each party was advocating for. And I think Mm. that's the problem. It is hard for me to imagine that we get something that fundamentally reshaped Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act from a case like this because of all those factors. At the same time, I am not optimistic that Section 2 will survive this court. And that's why I think it is really important to see what Congress is working on now and how the court might look at what Congress does next. Well, and here's why I think that's important. You know, I do not agree with Justice Roberts on lots and lots of things. And I most likely would have voted to leave preclearance intact. That being said, this legislation was written for a very specific moment in time and very specific challenge. I I read an article the other day that talked about that our democracy really is only about 50 years old from the passage of the Voting Rights Act because we weren't a democracy up until that point in the middle of the Jim Crow South. That wasn't a democracy. And I think all that's true. And I think that the legislation, because it was written to really tackle the Jim Crow South and such overt, prolific and just intense attempts to, you know, not just prevent or make it harder for black people to vote, 
but just to remove them from the political process completely. The challenges we face now are very different. And I think the challenges we face making sure that all manner of marginalized communities are not, do not have so many barriers in front of their ability to vote is just, it's a different problem to tackle. The problem the Voting Rights Act was written for, right? And so that's why I am encouraged that we have new legislation that is better equipped and but still prolific and essential in its own way in tackling our, you know, 21st century challenges when it comes to making sure that our democracy is getting better and not worse when it comes to voting access. So the House has passed H.R. 1. It will probably become a focus of time and attention in the Senate now that we have the American Rescue Plan Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, being signed into law as we are recording today. H.R. 1, I think before we start talking about the details of it and specifically the voting details of it, reminds me of a conversation we had a long time ago, Sarah, about the Affordable Care Act. And how there is so much in the Affordable Care Act. It embodies so many different ideas. If you're going to examine it in an intellectually honest way, it is hard to be just for it or against it. Right. Surely you will find something in it that you think is a good idea. And surely you will find something in it that you think is Mm -hmm. not. And I think that's how we have to approach H.R. 1. Because it covers not only voting and elections. It covers campaign finance. And it covers ethical issues. All of these are massively complex areas of the law. They are beyond the grasp of most Americans and our everyday experience. And so there's a lot going on here. And I say that because I worry that when we start talking about the parts of H.R. 1 that I believe are essential and that must be passed, we are setting up anyone who has a critique of H.R. 1 as an opponent of democracy. And I don't think that's fair. Well, just ask the ACLU. The ACLU came out in opposition, particularly to the campaign finance and the transparency measures and the disclosure measures contained in H.R. 1. And look, we could do a whole podcast on that. So I think we should stay focused for today on the provisions that directly address voting and elections. What do you think? I think that's a good plan. I just want to say there are some valid critiques beyond Mm -hmm. that. And it is important for the Senate to do some work around that, I think. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. 
The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. So as a person that that thinks deeply and cares quite a bit about federalism and understanding that I know your journey on this has changed a little bit. Tell me how you feel about the federal government playing such an active role in a process that the Constitution delegates to the states. I think it is important to think about specifically how the Constitution delegates the process to the states, because the Constitution also gives Congress a big role to play around congressional elections and around preserving the purity, as the Supreme Court has said, of the presidential election. And so... I think like a lot of things in terms of federalism, where you have Congress saying what the floor is and states deciding where their ceilings go, that's Mm. a good balance. Right. There are so many logistical aspects of voting that could only be done well by the states. 
that I don't think the states lose a ton of power here. What I think we see with this proposal is Congress saying, let's revisit what the minimum acceptable standards are going to look like across the country. And we're not going to raise those standards without correspondingly giving you some money to comply Mm -hmm. with those new standards. And look, if that doesn't work, like we got to shut the whole United States experiment down because that's what we do in almost every area where Congress has a role to play, right? They set some standards and then they tie the receipt of funds to states coming along with those standards. And so I don't think this is an encroachment on the role that states constitutionally are supposed to play in our elections. And I actually think that there is a ton of benefits for states wrapped up in this legislation. Well, let me say as a Democrat, someone who's, you know, historically been concerned um, with individual rights and marginalized community, I think this is exactly the place for federal involvement where you have populations across the country who are seeing barriers put up in front of their ability to register to vote, their right to vote, absentee voting, all these things. And I mean, I think this is this is the role the federal government is supposed to play, right, is to say, look, like you said, this is the floor because we're going to worry about the population in your state or locality that is a minority that and I don't mean just an ethnic minority or a racial minority. It could be lots of different minorities. Right. And that if if the federal government does not provide the floor then they will be permanently shut off from political power or political access or participation inside their democracy. And I think that problem looks different in 2021. And the provisions of H.R. 1 really tries to get get at that. I mean, I think the the biggest one, the most important one, the one that to me affects everything, expansion of the right to vote, particularly to minority or marginalized communities, to campaign finance reform, even just to the the basic functioning of our government is it contains a section on redistricting reform and requires states to use nonpartisan redistricting commissions to d- draw district lines. We're seeing that across the country, but we're seeing it in blue states. And so, you know, the idea that we'll have blue states participating and moving forward and red states, you know, thumbing their noses at these reforms and continuing to sort of exploit a system that we know is easily exploitable to me, like that's the the most beautiful part of this legislation. I want nationwide redistricting reform. And we'll link to a piece from Politico about this provision. It had to be negotiated a lot in the House among Democrats because there were members of the Congressional Black Caucus who said, wait a second, there are states in which an independent commission is still going to be really bad for black voters. Mm -hmm. And we need to be careful about that. And so that language has been negotiated, and I imagine it will continue to be negotiated. But I agree with you that finding a way to have confidence in the way congressional districts are drawn, whether you are in a state dominated by Democrats or Republicans, is critically important. Because that affects every other aspect of this, right? It affects your representation. It affects the makeup of these state legislators passing this law. Like it, impact, it impacts um, campaign finance reform. I was listening to um, coverage of HR one, and like it was, a, it was largely the effort of a, a lot of voting rights organizations coming together and being like, "What's our our just dream bill look like?" And so, so many of them touch on redistricting reform as just the beating heart of this bill that really would have broad and positive impact. 
I think it is so fundamental because especially as we were traveling around the country when we were able to do that, a lot of conversations that we would be having about possibilities for structural reform and just really needed good substantive legislation would end at gerrymandering. Yep. Because there can be no accountability in a gerrymandered system. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court has written about how difficult it is to know when you have gerrymandering that's appropriate and when you don't, and how hard it is to establish good standards around this. This is not an easy fix. And I think it's probably one of those things that no one will ever look at the way districts are drawn and say, like, a a plus, 100 percent, this is perfect. Right. Because it's very, very challenging. Uh, But we can do better than we're doing now. We can at least not try to do harm through the way these districts are drawn. Mm -hmm. And that is not happening everywhere. So I agree with you that I think that's really important. We have put together some bullet points on everything that's in HR1 that we can include in the show notes because it is just the voting portion of HR1 Mm -hmm. is a lot. When I try to think about what problems are we trying to solve here, I really love and appreciate the focus of HR1 on cybersecurity and on establishing some national standards for paper ballots as backup so that we can always audit election results, some minimum standards for voting equipment across the country so that we have confidence in each other's systems. You know, this is the federalism thing, too, because federalism, to me, doesn't mean that we treat each state as a social island, especially if you're making an argument that the Electoral College should continue to exist, you must recognize that our fortunes are tied together around our federal elections and that Mm -hmm. a voter in any state of this country feeling confident that ballots were cast and counted properly with the same opportunity for every person eligible to vote being presented is just critically important. I think that's true even if you are for abolition of the Electoral College. Our, our fortunes are still tied together around national elections, even as we're electing our members of the House of Representatives. You know, the makeup of that body affects all of us. And so I really struggle to see the argument that H.R. 1, as to the voting provisions, has some kind of constitutional defect. Well, and it enfranchises people who have historically been prevented from voting. There's a felon disenfranchisement section of H.R. 1. There's some modernization. There are just, again, setting that floor so that the system can begin to, I just feel like, I feel it's like creaky gears, right? I just feel like there's a certain amount of just putting some gears back in process and getting some forward movement and momentum so that it's not this patchwork of approaches across the country that leads to disenfranchisement and suppression and those barriers to the right to vote. Because, you know, why do we vote? (laughs) It's not just a nice concept, right? It's because the more people that participate in our democracy, the better our democracy is and the better the representation is and therefore the better the solutions are and the better perception of the problems. Like, I just think like that's it's not just to win. We don't vote just to win elections. We vote to govern. We vote to have our voices heard in how we want our government to function, not just so our team wins. And I think what I see in H.R. 1 is just a a centering of that motivating principle that we don't just vote to win elections. 
We vote to make our voices heard in the priorities of our representation and our democracy. And I hope that this is just the beginning, truly, that this is that as the floor is set by the federal government, which I hope that H.R. 1 passes the Senate, R.I.P. filibuster, that I think we all know where I stand at this point, but that it's an engagement across the country, you know, in, in our states to say, OK, well, now we have the floor. What do we want the ceiling to look like in Kentucky? What do we want the ceiling to look like where there are large populations of Native communities? Because it's not all going to look the same. What the, that's how we started this conversation is that we're big and we're complex and we all face different challenges. But setting that foundation of this is we we, we want more people voting and not just people that vote for us, everybody. I think this issue is a really good illustration of how in so many ways our politics are being defined right now by how you characterize the scope of a problem. Mm. So if you look at everything we've talked about today, there are problems around voting. And Democrats in Congress are aiming to solve a particular set of problems around voting. Republicans throughout a number of states, not in all of them, like we talked about in Kentucky, I think we have Republicans who are genuinely interested in expanding opportunities to vote. But there are state Republican parties and elected officials who are defining the problem around this idea that the 2020 election Mm -hmm. was stolen. And here's what I think the problem is for the people who are defining the problem that way. I don't know how you solve a problem that's premised on something that is not true. We've gotten criticism of not going through step by step why the election wasn't stolen. And I don't know how to do that besides reviewing court decisions and pointing to what Republican secretaries of state have said, it's almost impossible to prove a negative. It's almost impossible to say to someone, I can refute any situation that you dream up when you don't feel any obligation to tie what you're telling me to something that's real. And I'm trying to tie all my arguments to something that's real. Mm -hmm. And so when you start by defining the scope of a problem around things that just are not true, it's an unsolvable problem. The problem only exists to perpetuate the theory of a case around one or a handful of politicians. And so I can't imagine that people who are really invested in the big lie are going to hear about the types of laws being passed across the country and then see another election cycle go through and go, oh, yeah, problem solved. We fixed it. Fantastic. I just don't think that there is going to be any satisfaction of the big lie because it's a lie. Mm-hmm. Well, also, in the most politically pragmatic calculus, it's also just dumb strategy. You know, Donald Trump lost because, in large part, he lost those suburban, highly educated voters who are likely to vote. Very likely to vote, no matter what barriers stand in the way, and also because there are fewer barriers standing in their way. So how you're going to transform the suburbs to be more likely to vote Republican through these laws is just beyond me. And also the expansion, because Donald Trump did expand some of his margins across the country. That There were places that happened. But what you see is particularly with low trust voters, the voters who are 
susceptible to the big lie or susceptible to his particular form of populism, they don't have a high propensity to vote. So if you want to if you want to improve his margins, putting more barriers to people voting is not the way to do it. I mean, you saw it on January 6th where they talked about so many of the people arrested for storming the Capitol didn't even vote in 2020. So to me, it's like it's not even, you know, I try to always think like people are motivated by power in politics. And so we can talk about and should talk about values and sort of national priorities and constitutional principles. It's all very important. But people um, are motivated by power and how to keep it. And I just think, like, even under that, even under the most craven calculus, these laws don't make any sense. (laughs) They just don't. You know, they are motivated by a lot of white supremacy, no doubt about that. And there is aspects of this that the more barriers you throw up to in front of the African-American community, then, of course, that's going to impact the Democratic Party and Democratic candidates. But I don't think it's as cut and dry as some people think it is. And I don't think that I think that there are aspects of even these bills that really, truly just target in the most racist way. Marginalized communities don't have impact beyond those communities. I think something in my brain is connecting a tweet from Eric Erickson to what you just said. I know you didn't expect me to say that. (laughs) Eric Erickson, if you don't know, is a conservative commentator. And he put out a tweet this week that got a lot of grief thrown his way. It said, I know a lot of smart people are out there saying the GOP was so focused on Dr. Seuss that they couldn't mount an effective opposition to the COVID plan. I think they need to learn what I've started learning. More voters will remember Seuss when they vote than the COVID plan. Mm. I honestly wonder if a part of what's going on here is that if you feel beholden to a group of people who are just angry that Joe Biden is the president and that Donald Trump is not, then you're looking for something to feed that group of people every day. Yeah. And what we're feeding that group of people today are a bunch of laws to tell them, yep, that election was stolen and we will not let it happen again. But that's not your long-term plan, right? Your long-term play is more culture wars, grievance, Mr. Potato Head, easy to remember, easy to fire people up about within their life experience. And I'm not trying to say that to be condescending, that's why I didn't get mad at Eric Erickson for that tweet, because I didn't read it as I think these voters are dumb. I read it as I'm learning valuable lessons about human nature, and we all should. We all have to stand back and learn some lessons about human nature if we want to do better in this system. And Eric Erickson and I would certainly disagree about what better in this system looks like. I just don't know that there's long-term political strategy going on here in the state legislation as much as it might seem as these proposals roll out. I hear that and I see that. And also, I think that strategy works. It is true that people are consumed by culture wars and grievance when they see no government in their own lives or when they are not reminded 
of the role of governance in their own lives. And I think what you see with the Biden administration is learning the hard lessons of previous democratic strategies. We'll just do the right thing and people will pick up on it. We will rescue the country from a recession. We will pat, we will expand health care across the country and people will just see the impact and make the connections. And I think what you see from the Biden administration, and I think this will hold through hopefully through 2022 and 2024 is like, oh, no, we need to keep pointing that out. We need to keep saying, I know the emotional reaction right now is Dr. Seuss and, let, and, and I don't want to, you know, blow off your grievance and ignore it because that's bad strategy too. But let me remind you of the impact of government in your own life. And it's not about whether you can get a Dr. Seuss book at your local bookstore. It's about are you more easily able to feed your children? Are we slashing child poverty, right? Are you able to afford your medications? Are you able to have student loan debt forgiven? I mean, I just think that it's you have to keep reminding people. And that so I don't think it's human nature. I think that is also an aspect of strategy that you can't just do. You can't just govern well and depend on people to see it and be like, they did a great job because other people are going to be defining you as well. And so you have to push back against that. So, I mean, I I see his observation, but I don't think that's a permanent situation or even a a complete analysis of the situation, because I think there's strategy on both sides that have to be paid attention to. And look, all of this gets to why the idea... (laughs) of voting at all is so complicated. Because when we talk about voting, we're not just talking about election day. And we're talking about voter registration. We're talking about campaigns. We're talking about how do we appeal to voters. We're talking about the representation we get on the back end of the election and what that means for the legislative priorities, what that means for people's lives. I mean, when you're in a democracy, it's one as big and complicated as ours. When you say, oh, we're going to talk about voting. I mean, you're encompassing this entire universe of things. And I, I mean, I think you see the enormity of that in H.R. One, I think you see the enormity of that and the legislation flowing across the country and different state legislators. And I think you see the enormity of that in the turnout of 2020. So it's not something that even if H.R. 1 flies through the Senate and gets signed into law tomorrow, we'll be done with and that we'll have to keep talking and thinking about as our country continues to change and grow. So up next, we're going to talk about what's on our mind outside politics. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. 
Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Sarah, you have promised the people a hip update, so let's hear it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There is a resource guide because I'm going to bring every problem I ever have to you people until the end of my days because it's just a perfect way to solve a problem. I'm like, I'm struggling with this. And you guys are like, oh, okay, here we have approximately 350 ideas for how to fix it. And it's, it's amazing. So we have shoe recommendation. There are lots and lots of shoe recommendations. There were lots of, you know, like, are you thinking about your mattress? Which I wasn't. But I have to say the number one recommendation came from Amber. She recommended an online class from Catherine Middlebrooks called Happy Hips. I spent my own cash money on this class because, you know, I'd already talked about like I wanted a more holistic approach and she's a corrective exercise specialist. So there's like corrective exercise and yoga. Y'all, the first day I did this class, it got better because I think, okay, here's the plot twist. I don't think it was my hips the whole time. I think it was my glute, y'all. I mean, I don't mean to just shock everybody, but it really was. And when she she talks about like we ask our hips to do too much, especially postnatal. And particularly the glutes are weak. So I think what was happening is my glutes were weak. And so they were never getting like fully fired and then fully relaxing. And so they were just hurting all the time. And I've been doing this class. I've convinced you to sign up for the class. And it has helped me tremendously. I have signed up for the class. It is very intense. Mm -hmm. It is helping me notice some things about my body, which I think is always a plus. 
And I recommend it to anybody who I like the premise of we just expect our hips to be sore. And that is a poor expectation that we should not yep. allow to perpetuate. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I know everybody's going to find this resource list really useful. Thank you to Elise for sorting through so much feedback to help us get that done. And to all of you for being part of Sarah Crowdsources Her Medical Issues <laughs> community. <laughs> yeah, y'all should have been so good at that because that might just turn into a like a forever segment on the show. OK, here's what's bothering me. What y'all got? Listen, I don't even think it has to be limited to health stuff. Our audience is just prolific with their recommendations. It's amazing. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics as we took another uh, characteristically wide-ranging approach. (laughs) We start with policy. We end in the, the philosophy of democracy. It's just how we roll here. And we love that you are always along for the ride. We hope that you will be back here again with us on Tuesday for another episode. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. David McWilliams. Allie Edwards. Martha Brunitsky. Amy Whited. Janice Elliott. Sarah Ralph. Barry Kaufman. Jeremy Sequoia. Lori Ladau. Emily Neasley. Allison Luzader. Tracy Putoff. Danny Osmond. Molly Kors. Julie Haller. Jared Minson. Marnie Johansson. The Creeps! Tawny Peterson. The Pettons! Sarah Greenup. Sherry Blem. Tiffany Hasler. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless. Linda Daniel. Joshua Allen. And Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.